0: taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Man, I'm telling you what, those are three powerful verses. We sang a bit ago about how every high thing must be torn down. Do you know what that means? It means that anything that controls us, anything that is of a higher priority in our lives, if you go through the Old Testament... Uh, The the various uh, kings that were put in place, the kings of Judah, the kings of Israel, uh, one of the first things that it says about every king that comes into succession is he was either a good king or an evil king. And what determined if he was an evil king, he would erect these high things above the altars of God. And then a good king would come along and it would say, for example, King Hezekiah came along and tore down all the high things. The same thing is true in our lives. There are things in our lives that gain places of priority that have the ability to control our lives. Uh, Addictions. uh, Just things that we place of more importance. Did you know that anything that is more important to you than God is an idol? It is. And if you have idols in your life... You're breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other God before me. So all of those things have to be torn down. And here Paul is telling the church in Corinth how to tear those things down and the importance of having them torn down in our lives. he's, He's writing this second letter to the church in Corinth for the purpose of defending his apostleship. Now, it seems that there were a group of false teachers in this church who were seeking a following among the people of God. And in an effort to get others to to follow them, they were using this tactic of of denouncing and, and, and belittling the apostolic authority that Paul had been given by God. In other words, they're tearing down Paul's teaching in order to elevate and substantiate. Their own teaching. And and so Paul is writing to this church and he's saying, you know what, you've leveled this accusation at me uh, that I live and uh, these teachers are leveling this accusation against me that I am living in a fleshly way. Well, Paul addresses that. He counters that the entire focus of his ministry had not been directed toward those things that are outward, but on those things that are inward those things in our lives that, that, that need to be dealt with. And Paul reiterates here some seven years later after he writes the first letter to the church in Corinth, uh, excuse me, when he wrote to the church in Ephesus, that the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly weapons, but are spiritual ones. Now, how many of you know that you can't fight fleshly weapons You can't fight spiritual weapons with fleshly warfare. Paul is telling the church in Ephesus, and he's reiterating here to the church in Corinth, your battle is not against flesh and blood. Spiritual warfare is what you're engaged in, and in order to fight spiritual warfare, you have to fight it with spiritual weaponry. Now, for the church in Ephesus, he then gave them... Ephesus chapter number six, which talks about the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes shod with the pe- preparation of the gospel. He talks about what, warf- what, what uh, uh, spiritual equipment you have to use to fight spiritual warfare. And so here in verses three through five of 2 Corinthians, he's reminding this church that his was a ministry that was focused on changing people's hearts. And thus the lives of men and women by the transforming power of Christ. And it's interesting. I look at verse number 6, which we didn't read. I'll go ahead and read it for you. And Paul says, and we are ready to punish any disobedience once your obedience is complete. You know what that is? That's Paul saying kind of a tongue-in-cheek jab. He's saying, you know what? I'll come and we'll deal with the disobedience in your church once you guys get your act together. Um, (laughs) once the Corinthian church had come to its senses and were ready again to embrace him as the apostle that God had placed before them, then he would be glad to come back to their church and punish any disobedience once their obedience is complete. It's a reference to his dealing with false teachers, trying to lead them astray. In other words, you quit listening to them and then I'll come back. You, you can't continue to listen to false teaching. And all this having been said here, I want us to focus on these three verses, three through five, because there Paul, I believe, describes the process that needs to take place in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ in order for them to grow spiritually and, as we've been talking about the entire sermon series, to become more like Jesus. So let's go. Paul describes and reveals what the Lord wants to do in the hearts of those, <coughs> excuse me, puberty sitting in. <coughs> he reveals That wasn't from the Lord. I'm sorry. <coughs> He reveals what the Lord wants to do in the heart of those who are his disciples. Now, let me just give you a context. The wisest man who ever lived, his name was Solomon. He tells us back in Proverbs chapter 4, verse number 23, these words. Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. How does it relate to what Paul's saying to the church in Corinth? He's saying, you know what? you got false teaching going on in your midst. You need to guard your heart, what you're receiving, what you're listening to. Uh, you know, you, you, ha- you have guys in the midst that are, that are trying to tear down the ministry that God gave me to you. And they're doing it for fleshly reasons. And you're giving them an ear in your church. And he's reiterating the words of Solomon. You need to start guarding your heart. Now, the process of discipleship, that is growing in the likeness of Jesus, it really boils down to to our heart. How many of you have a heart this morning? How many of you have one that's working? (laughs) If, If the way that I live... If the way that I live is going to be changed, that change has to take place here. Now, try as I might, I might want to intellectually make the change in my life, but ultimately that change has to take place in my heart and convince me that that change is for the better. Now, I, the reason I tell you that is because, again... I grew up hearing everything that I should do and everything that I shouldn't do. And so intellectually, I had all the things that told me this is why you need to be a Christian. Obey the rules. But for some reason, that stuff that I knew wasn't producing change in my heart. Obeying all the rules, disobeying a few, but obeying all the rules wasn't changing and transforming me and making me like Jesus. I'll tell you what it was doing. It was making me hard and bitter. Because you, me, just like you, couldn't obey all the rules. We couldn't keep them all. But what happened is I want you to hear me carefully because I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. What happened is Jesus revealed himself to me in such a way that I entered into relationship with him. I, I developed a love for him in my heart, and he began to change and transform my heart. And guess what happened in the course of that? I began, became able to follow the rules. Does that make sense? Out of the relationship that I had with him, out of of my desire to be more like him, I found myself obeying the rules, doing what I should and not doing what I shouldn't. And it didn't feel like a a yoke of, of slavery around me that says you have to do this. It was because I wanted to please Jesus. Now, friends, there's a big difference between... Pleasing Jesus and wanting to please Jesus. I To this day, I don't please Jesus in everything that I do and say. But He knows my heart. And He knows that I want to. And so when I do something stupid that's not pleasing to Him, I come to Him just as the psalmist David, the man after God's own heart, and repent... And he continues to change and transform me. That's why I become and that's why you become more and more and more like Jesus. Does that make sense? That's pretty simple, but that's the process of discipleship. It's, It's a matter of the heart. A disciple is one who has allowed Christ to touch their heart. And allowing Christ to touch my heart Changes me, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Now that's important. That was the point that Jesus was talking about and trying to make with the religious leaders of his day back in Matthew chapter number 23, verses 25 and 26. And this is what he said to them. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish... But inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup. So the outside of it may also become. Man. Jesus also added in Mark 7, 6. He said, the prophet Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honor me with their lips... But their heart is far from me. Now, see, that's the difference between trying to keep all the rules and being able to keep the rules because of a transformation that's come as a result of a relationship with Jesus. It's like, I don't know how else to explain it. You know, I don't know whether God sent them or God appointed them, but they thought he did. All of these little old ladies, some of which were family, who thought that their mission in life was to keep me in line, to tell me what I shouldn't do, and to tell me what I should do, right? And uh, the only time I'd ever hear from them was when I'd done something that I shouldn't have done. And then they'd come and say, oh, Terry, you shouldn't be doing that. Well, I have a nature just like every one of you do. And to complicate that, it was a teenage nature. Rebellion. So what did my heart say? You're telling me I can't do it. I'm going to bust my butt to show you I can. Now, that wasn't smart. But that's the way that it was. And I don't think I'm alone in that. You know? But when I developed a relationship with Jesus... The Holy Spirit started cleaning me of the very things they were telling me I shouldn't be doing and placing in my heart a desire to do the things that I should be doing, except He did it in such a way that He made me think it was my idea and not theirs. Do you think that made a difference? Absolutely. Why? Because He wasn't changing what I thought in my head, He was changing my heart. And when you change your heart, it does something infinitely more important than changing your mind about some things. Okay. When God works to change the life of a person, it always happens in their heart. There has to be a heart change. Maybe it would be helpful for me at this point, for us to understand, for me to explain to you and help you understand the way man was originally made by God. So, to do that, go back with me to the book of Genesis, chapter number two, verse number seven. There, God tells us about the makeup of man that He had created and the three ways in which He created him. It says, The Lord then, God then breathed the man, uh, uh, formed the man out of the dust of the ground, that's his body, and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, that's his spirit and the man became a living soul that's his soul body mind or body spirit and soul paul mentions man's makeup in 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 verse number 23 there he says it this way now may the god of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your spirit soul and body be kept blameless For the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man was created with a body, a physical being. We all have one. The means but whereby we are conscious of the world that we live in. And because man was originally created perfectly, man had perfect health. Adam had perfect health when God made him. But in addition man was also made with a soul a psychological being the means whereby he could think with his mind and feel with his emotions and choose with his will and because he was created also psychologically perfect adam that is he was happy he didn't have any hang-ups He was also created with a spirit, a spiritual being, the means whereby he was conscious of his God. What did the Bible say about Adam and Eve? God came and walked with them and fellowshiped with them daily in the garden. He was aware that he had a superior being and that superior being was God. And because he was created spiritually perfect, man, Adam, was holy. But as man communed with God, he was influenced by God's words which led him to think as he ought to think, to feel as he ought to feel, and to choose as he ought to choose, which meant that he was living as he ought to live. And because of this perfect communion with God, man could live as God designed for man to live and therefore with the ability to lead all creation to bring glory to God. I mean, there in the beginning, things were perfect for Adam and Eve. The only thing they had to do was watch nonviolent animals walk by and give them names. And then they'd go talk with God and walk with God and hear God speak with them and commune with them. And there was perfect fellowship between them and God. Why? Because God didn't create man to live like robots blindly carrying out the will of His Creator because God desired that man be a willing servant, not a mindless slave. He desired to be in a loving relationship with mankind. And we all know that love love that isn't freely given isn't really love. Therefore, man had to be given the opportunity to choose to willingly live as God designed him to live. Now, how did God design Adam and Eve to live? in this way you can eat of any tree in this garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it for in the day that you do you will surely die so man's given a choice okay here's my choice i can eat of everything here except that tree Now, if Adam and Eve had made the choice to do exactly as God's words had told them to do, they could have continued to walk in uninterrupted fellowship and perfection with God. Why did God give them that one tree? Because He wanted man to have the ability to choose, to exercise a choice of His will. And so, He gave them this particular tree to afford man an opportunity to make a choice and of course you know if he ate of the tree man was saying that he was choosing to reject God's authority saying that he no longer trusted what God had to say about good and evil and he would instead become an authority himself on good and evil right deciding for himself what was good and what was evil now here's your test for the day What was man's choice? He chose to eat of the forbidden tree. And you and I here today are still bearing the consequences of that choice. Because from that day till now, Adam and Eve's choice to eat of the forbidden fruit broke fellowship with God. And every one of their descendants who came after them was born into broken fellowship with God, therefore in need of someone to reconcile their relationship with the Father. So, here's how it happened. You know it, I'll tell you anyway. Satan, in the form of a serpent, came to Eve and to Adam and persuaded them to go their own way rather than going God's way. And his method was to tempt them to look for guidance from the world. Can I just stop and say something right here? Did you know Satan hasn't altered his methods for 6,000 years? He's still using the same methods. And his method is to tempt them to seek, gui- to, to seek, us, for us to seek guidance from the world rather than from God. God had been speaking with them in uninterrupted fellowship, but they chose to, res- to take the advice of Satan and go ahead and eat from the forbidden tree. The Apostle Paul, uh, John, way over in the New Testament, clear almost to the back of the New Testament, tells us in 1 John chapter number 2, verses 15 and 16, and I'm reading from the Amplified Version, everything that belongs to the world... The lust of the flesh, that is craving for sensual gratification. The lust of the eyes, that's the greedy longings of the mind. And the pride of life, that is assurance in one's own resources or in the stability of earthly things. He said, These things do not come from the Father, but from the world itself. That's what Adam and Eve gave into. The lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And I mention this because Satan always, always, always calls you and I to operate by our feelings rather than by faith. It's the same approach he took with Eve and Adam. The woman saw the tree was good, Genesis 3, 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. That appealed to her emotions and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. That was the lust of the mind. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. That was a choice of her will. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And what was the consequence of that choice that Adam and Eve made? God's judgment of death. Remember what he told them? The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, did they, Adam and Eve die on the day they ate of that tree? For all intents and purposes, yes. They began the process of dying. Man died immediately in his spirit since he was cut off from the source of life, God himself. And the Apostle Paul talks about this for us in Ephesians chapter number 2, verses 1 and 2, again, the Amplified Version. He says, and you, speaking of us, he made alive when you were dead or slain by your trespasses and sins, in which at one time you walked habitually. You were following the course and the fashion of this world. In other words, you were under the sway of the tendency of this present age, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. Satan. But friends, it doesn't end there. And thanks be to God, it doesn't. Man progressively, you see, died in his soul as Satan's influence through the world led him more and more into spiritual darkness. Again, Paul talks about it for us in Romans chapter number number 1, verses 21 and 22. And I want you to listen to this. Hear what Paul says here. He says, they're thinking... Became nonsense, and their senseless minds were darkened. and he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Does that remind you of anything? That's our world that we live in. I mean, look look at the words <laughs> Their thinking became nonsense. Their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. We see the truth of that scripture played out in the headlines of every news broadcast we hear. The writer of Hebrews then adds that the consequence of that, well, let me say this first. Paul also says in Ephesians 4.18, they were darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. The writer of Hebrews then adds that man died ultimately in his body. So see how it happened? They died in their spirit. They died in their soul. And ultimately, we're all going to die physically in our body. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for people to die once, and after that, judgment. Now, what are the consequences awaiting those who are separated from God by sin? Well, the message translation tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, those who refuse to know God and refuse to obey the message will pay for what they've done. How? External exile from the presence of the Master and His splendid power is their sentence. Now, Jesus told us that's not quite all. Not only will you be exiled from God, but you'll be in a place of punishment, eternal punishment, where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. A place of eternal torture. It's called hell. That's the consequence of choosing a life apart from God. Now let me emphasize that that destiny only awaits those who refuse to respond to the good news of Jesus. You see, Jesus came to reverse all of that. And to restore man to the place of once again having a heart that is responsive to God. How did he do that? He sent his son Jesus. To die on a cross and in His sinless perfection take upon Himself your sin and mine. The punishment that we were condemned to pay so that that barrier of sin in our lives might be forever removed and it be possible for us to once again have relationship with God. You see, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, through the person of the Holy Spirit, the light of the world enters our hearts and darkness has to dispel. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 6. He says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness, He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face or in the person of God. Of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The darkness of the world is dispelled in the person of Jesus Christ. How does it happen? When we allow Christ to touch our heart. And because Christ has been allowed to touch my heart, what happens? I begin to think differently. I begin to feel differently. I begin to choose differently, which all leads me to living differently. Body, mind, and spirit. Are you with me this morning? You see, see, here's the thing, friends. I've changed. I'm not who I used to be because of Jesus. That's what you need to believe indeed if Christ has touched your heart. That's what His Spirit is constantly trying to tell us. And one of the things that I have said for many years is the greatest crisis in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding who we are in Christ Jesus. We are His light. We are reflecting the light of the world's light in the darkness of our world. Why? Because He has changed us from the inside out. We're no longer children of Satan. We are children of God. We no longer look to the world, but we look to the Word. We don't walk by our feelings, but we walk by faith. And as we allow the Spirit of God to influence us through the Word of God, what's Romans tell us? Our minds will be renewed causing us to feel about things as we ought to feel, causing us to make choices that we ought to make so that we can live the life that we ought to be living. You know what it amounts to? It amounts to us abstractly rejecting the old way of life by a choice of our will. Ah, Uh, I I wish I had saved that. I I got something on my phone this week about what grace has done in our lives and it it had something to do. I can't quote it exactly. It said, if grace hasn't changed your life, then you probably haven't been saved. (sighs) That's the truth. Because if you've been saved, there's going to be changes take place. Because the Spirit of God begins living inside of you and begins working from the inside out the changes that have come to your heart. And we need to reject the the old way of life and choose to start learning how to live the new life that we now have because Jesus has touched our heart. We need to realize who we are. Who are we? He's now our Heavenly Father too. So much so that we are heirs of God. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are somebody. I think I'm preaching to the wrong congregation this morning. We are somebody in Christ Jesus. Friends, there's a part of me that wants to do like one of my boxers and take a running fit around this church about right now because I'm not who I used to be because Jesus Christ has touched and changed my heart. I no longer serve him out of obligation. I serve him because I love him. I serve him because I want to be like him. So that means I'm not going to be going along with the old crowd anymore. You know why? Because they're empty-headed and mindless. The crowd has refused for so long to deal with God that they've not only lost touch with God, many of them have lost touch with reality. They can't think straight anymore. I'm just rephrasing what Paul already said. They can't think straight anymore. They feel no shame, no remorse when they let themselves participate in all kinds of obsessions and sexual perversion. That's no life for a child of God. I read probably a number of years ago now, probably four or five years ago, that 33% of pastors in America have an addiction to pornography. Think of the magnitude of that, friends. 33%. Pastors... You know how it happens? Because all we have to do is shut the door on our office where nobody can see what we're doing. We have access to the internet, which can show us anything that we want to see. We start making choices that go against the grain of what God has told us in His Word. And those images that flash up on our computer screens, we just can't erase them and pretend that we've never seen them. They linger. And they begin to grow. And they begin to lust for more and more and more. And friends, you might have noticed it by now, but I'm not just talking about pastors. And eventually they get a stronghold in our hearts. Eventually... Rather than studying God's word, we're studying to see what we can pull up on the internet. It's got a grip on us. Satan's got his foot in the door. And he's getting ready to kick down the door because the Holy Spirit's not going to reside there with him. He's not going to cohabitate with the spirit of the evil one. And that's why we need to pull down the strongholds. In our life, And that's why Paul wrote the words of 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. The weapons of our warfare are, are not carnal but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And the last thing that he said in verse number 5 is take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Some of you who've been in my office, I guarantee you have heard me counsel you those exact words. Take every thought captive. When the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes is crying out to be catered to, what do you do? I belong to Jesus. That's not who I am anymore. I'm taking that thought and I'm casting it aside. I'm pulling it down because I belong to Jesus and I want to be like Jesus. And if I want to be like Jesus, that stuff has no place in my life whatsoever. Why? Because we've allowed Christ to touch our heart. As we pay careful attention to Him and to His ways, we're instructed in the truth, just as Jesus Himself was instructed in truth by His heavenly Father on a daily basis. We no longer have the excuse of ignorance. Everything, and I mean everything, connected with that old way of life has to go. Why? Because it's rotten through and through. And Jesus has no semblance of being rotten through and through. We want to be like Jesus. We don't want to be like the world. And then we take on the entirety of a new way of life. A life fashioned by God. A life renewed from the inside out. Working itself outwardly into our conduct. As God reproduces His character in us. I'm sitting here rereading that even as I'm sharing it with you. Working itself outwardly into our conduct. (laughs) How many of you have ever ever been in need of an attitude adjustment? You know how to do it? Allow the Holy Spirit... To adjust your attitude on the inside and it will eventually begin to work its way into your conduct and reproduce the character of Christ Jesus in you and as I conclude my point my main point is this none of us have to continue living as we have been living Jesus Christ came to change our life and to change it from the inside out and he can only do this friends If we allow Him to touch our heart. There are some of us, I'm guessing, in this room this morning that need to make the commitment today to allow Jesus to really substantially transform and change your heart. This is what it means when I speak of of inviting Jesus into your heart. Every Sunday at the end of my message, I give you that opportunity. That's what it means. And it's not... It's not something that's childish language. You know, we used to sing into my heart, into my heart, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. It's not childish language. We're seeking to emphasize that salvation is a personal experience with a living Lord whereby He is allowed entrance into the innermost self in order to change who we have been into what He wants us to be. And not just for now. But the best part is that change changes us for all eternity. What am I saying to you? I'm saying, yeah, you can get saved and punch your ticket to heaven. That's all great and wonderful. We're all going there. Hallelujah. But Jesus Christ can have a serious impact on your life right now. Do you want to make a difference in your world? They already think you're weird. Just Just let them think it. I'd much rather be thought of as weird than think the way some of these idiots are thinking. He can significantly impact your life as it is now. He can change your conduct. He can change your character. He can change the way you deal with people. He can change your ability to love people. Love people that you may never have thought were lovable. And we all have those people in our lives. You can put a love in your heart for them. Never in the world did I ever think that I would have love for murderers and rapists and child molesters. But God did a work in my heart. And let me to know that He can do the same for them that He did for me because He can make the vilest sinner clean. If He can change them, He can change us. Made the statement a couple of weeks ago that many people miss salvation by 18 inches. The distance from their head to their heart. Don't be one of them. Don't be one of them. Some of us here today need to make that commitment to allow Christ to not just give us a good feeling when we come to church and worship together and hear perhaps a good message and we walk out feeling good about ourselves. That's not the kind of change I'm talking about. I'm talking about transforming change. That the people you've been hanging around with will virtually not Recognize you by the way you now act. It's not a matter of abstinence. You know, I've had a, dealt with a lot of guys that have gone through AA and NA and SA and all those other A's, and you know, I, they've done some good. Thank God for that. But I'm telling you here this morning. Our goal is not to abstain from doing all the stupid stuff. Our goal is to be changed and transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. That means that people with addictions can be set free and delivered. Had a man come to my Freedom from Addiction class 2005 or 2006, a man who sat in a church congregation just like you every day of his life, He comes to my addiction class, and I said, Steve, why are you here? And he says, because 22 years ago, and he gave me the date. You know how they do if they've been to AA. He gave me the date. I've been sober and haven't had a drink since such and such a date 22 years ago. I said, well, thank the Lord. Praise God for that. Why are you here? Because not one of those days in 22 years has gone by without me dying for a drink. Friends, that's not freedom. He whom the sun sets free is free indeed. So therefore, walk in the liberty that you've been called into. Allow Jesus Christ to deliver you. AA can help you abstain. It can help you stop. But it can't deliver you. Only Jesus can deliver you. And that goes for whatever your life-controlling issue may be, alcohol or something else. Now I told you I'm going to continue this thought next week. But today's the day that you need to decide to confess, God, I need to change. I want to be changed and transformed. Musicians, would you come, please? Today's the day that you need to decide that you don't want to live the old life any longer. But that you're going to learn how to live the changed life that Jesus has provided for you. Because he, you've allowed him to touch your heart. You know what? This is one of the most fundamental, simple messages that I have ever preached. It really is. But but it's also probably the most Bible-based sermon I've ever preached. These are not my words that I'm sharing with you this morning, friends. This is the Word of God. And I deliberately designed this message that way because I want you to hear what God says. Much more than I want you to hear me tell you what I think God says. So now you've heard it. And now it becomes the responsibility of everyone in this room to say, Jesus, I want you to change me. I want you to change me. Would you bow with me, please? Someone has said, That there's only one seat on a throne. So when it comes to your heart, there's only one seat on the throne of your heart. Who's occupying it? Is it you? Your desires? Your will? Ultimately, your choices? Or have you let Jesus take His rightful place on the throne of your heart? He wants to change you. You know, it'd be one thing, friends, if we just said, Okay, Jesus, you're on the throne of my heart. But then we kept doing what we wanted to do. We're lying to ourselves. If Jesus is on the throne of our heart, He's going to be the one that affects our will, affects our choices, ultimately even affects our desires. Why? Because He's changing us from the inside out. You're here this morning. And you say, Pastor, I need to put Jesus in His rightful place on the throne of my heart. Just lift your hand this morning. I see see that hand, I see another hand, another hand, another, 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 another. Lord Jesus, for each hand that's been raised this morning, Lord, I believe, I believe to the core of my being that their hand was raised because they mean business with you. They weren't trying to show somebody else or have somebody else look at them and say, wow, look at them, they're making changes. That's not why they did it. It's not an easy thing to raise your hand and be singled out in a group of people. But Lord, they're not raising them for the purpose of people seeing them. They're raising them for the purpose of you seeing their need. Now, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do your desired work in the heart and life of each and every hand that was raised this morning. And may they begin to see the results of that work that you are doing begin to gradually, day by day, week by week, work itself from the inside out, reproducing your conduct and your character in their lives. In Jesus' name. Would you stand with me, please? We sang this song earlier, but you may, not have sung, you may not have sung it at that time with the same context that I'm asking you to sing it this time. It says, let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from. You know what that means? You're not running to the world. You're not drinking the water of the world. You're drinking the water of the king of kings. You're running to the king when you have need of solutions in your life.